If you would like to follow along in your Bible this morning, turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. We're almost at the halfway point. Actually, we will be by the end of this sermon. We'll be at the halfway point through the book of Acts. Now, while some uh, Bibles title this book, Acts of the Apostles, what I've been stressing as we've been going through this book is that that's not the original title of this book, right? The title of the book is simply Acts. And a lot of people say it's more appropriate to say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit or it's the Acts of the living Christ, not just through apostles, but through any believer, right? Through his disciples. And so, in this sense, we can understand that this isn't just about the acts of the apostles in history, but the same spirit that was acting and working through these apostles and these disciples is the same spirit, the same Christ that is actively working in you and me today. Amen? So as we read these stories, we don't just want to see these things as, you know, these are just kind of one-time things, one-time events that God does. No, this is something that God wants to constantly repeat in the life of every believer throughout each generation. He wants to constantly show us that he is alive and well and working in his church. Amen? So, beginning in Acts chapter 13, we see that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they were sent out on their first missionary journey. And we concluded Acts 13 last Sunday. We saw how they first began ministry on the island of Cyprus, and then they went to what's known as modern-day Turkey today, really eastern modern-day Turkey, at the time of Paul and Barnabas, it was known as the Roman province of Galatia. And so they spent some time ministering there in the largest city in Galatia. That was called Antioch. It's an Antioch in the territory of Pisidia in Galatia. So it's the Galatian Antioch. Not the Antioch they were sent out from, but a different one. And they, they spent time preaching in the synagogue, and then what, what did we see after, you know, Paul preaches this masterful sermon there? A lot of the Jews got mad, and they, they got the, 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 the prominent women in the city. They stirred up their emotions, and the women got the prominent officials to get stirred up in their emotions, and they expelled Paul and Barnabas out of the city. So Paul and Barnabas, they shake off the dust from their feet, and they rejoiced with the disciples that had been made there. And they said, okay, they've kicked us out. We'll just go to the next city. And that's what we're going to continue today. We're going to conclude, really, their ministry in this territory of Galatia. You know, this Paul wrote a book called Galatians. It's to all of these cities he visited in this Roman territory. It's the only book that's written to a whole territory. All of his other books are just written to cities are written to individuals, but this is written to a large territory of, of churches. And so this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 14, right after they've been expelled from Pisidian Antioch. 14 verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium, so this is 90 miles southeast of Antioch. They travel 90 miles southeast, and they make it to Iconium. It happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke 
that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. All right, let's, let's stop there. You know, here, here they come and, and they travel along uh, the, the major Roman road in that territory. It was a lot, of, uh, a lot safer of a journey than, than the trek they had made uh, through the Taurus Mountains earlier to get to Antioch. And, and, and they come to Iconium, and the first thing they do is they do what they had done in every other place they had visited. They find where the Jewish quarter is, and they mingle with the Jews there, and they prepare to de deliver a message the first Sabbath they are there in the synagogue. And what does Paul preach? Well, it, it doesn't tell us, uh, but it does tell us that a great multitude, both of Jews and Greeks, believed after his message. So I'm guessing, most likely, it was probably the same sort of thing that he preached uh, that we saw in Antioch, the same sort of sermon. And what did we see in his sermon in Antioch? We saw that Paul taught about God's faithfulness to his people. Hallelujah. I see we got quite a bit of feedback here. We, can we work on that a little bit? Um, you know, uh, God, uh, uh, Paul taught about God's faithfulness to his people throughout Israel's history, that ultimately what? Ultimately climaxed in his faithfulness in sending his son Jesus Christ to the cross, as Paul said in Antioch, to hang on the tree. Why? Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became a curse for us. He bore the penalty of our sin, death, and in turn, he gave us his own righteousness. And at the powerful preaching of this faithful God who loves us, even though we've sinned, even though we've messed up, we see multitudes believing and placing their faith that they've got a good Father in heaven like this, right? And, and we're told a multitude believes. But what always happens when there's a move of God? Well, what we find in Scripture, what always happens at at the heels of a move of God is the opposition of the enemy, right? <laughs> the, the devil will always oppose and attack God's work in your life. He will never stop, as Peter writes in his letter in 1 Peter 5, he will never stop shooting flaming arrows, right? He will never stop being a roaring lion seeking to devour people. He, he will never stop raising up his own ambassadors that try to poison the minds of God's children, right? And, and because Paul and Barnabas saw such vicious opposition to their gospel, such vicious opposition to their message, verse 3 says that they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord. Now, how many know that our own world, our, our own culture, our own day, right, is, is um, viciously opposed to Jesus Christ, right? And so that's what Paul and Barnabas experienced. 
And, you know, if we're going to make a dent, if we're going to make an impact in the way people think, in the way people live, guess what? It's going to take a commitment. It's going to take time. It's going to take discipleship. It's going to take saying, you know what? I see these people are trying to poison everybody's mind. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fight fire with fire, and I'm going to stay here longer, you know, refreshing their minds, and they are poisoning their minds, right? And, you know, having an ownership for your faith and being able to defend your faith, that's not something that just happens overnight, right? And, and, and when you don't have deep roots in the message of the gospel, when you don't have deep roots in the truth of Scripture, you, you can easily be tossed to and fro by every new wind of doctrine that comes your way. So Paul and Barnabas are saying, I, I don't want you guys to be tossed to and fro. I don't want your minds to be poisoned. So I'm going to make a commitment to settle down here and disciple you so that when I leave, you know, these guys who are trying to poison your minds, you, you know, th their strategies don't work. And... Um, you know, look what it says in verse 3. As, as uh, this long period of time, what he's doing, it's not just that he's teaching the scriptures. It's not just that he's teaching the gospel, but it says this, verse 3, who was bearing, this is speaking of God, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The first point I want to make is this, that God bears witness to the word of his grace. Other translations say, God confirmed the message of his grace. Or God testified to the word of his grace. Or God proved that their message was true. The point is that the primary person at work in their ministry during their long stay in Iconium was not Paul and Barnabas. The primary person at work was God. This was not a, a ministry that was centered around Paul and Barnabas. This was a ministry centered around the person of the Holy Spirit who was at work in their life. They didn't see Paul and Barnabas work miracles. They saw God work miracles through Paul and Barnabas. Aren't you glad that God still bears witness to the word of his grace even today, right? You know, Paul and Barnabas, they weren't eloquent philosophical lecturers. They weren't great orators. They weren't great speakers. In fact, this is what Paul says about his own speaking in 2 Corinthians 10.10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible, right? Apparently, a lot of people thought this guy was a really crummy speaker, right? They thought his, his speeches were worthless, amounting to nothing. Maybe he hadn't been trained in rhetoric as much as he had been trained in the art of writing. But that didn't matter because what he did preach and what he did speak had the power of God behind it, and that's what ultimately mattered. So this is why he, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech, or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul preached Christ and him crucified. He preached the word of grace. And as he painted a picture of the crucifixion for his audiences, as he spoke of Jesus as the suffering servant, what happened? God poured out signs and wonders. Now we're going to get to one of these signs and wonders in a moment and, and how it was poured out. But the point I just want to settle in your heart is that God desires to back up his word, as Jesus says in Mark 16, with signs following, right? He desires to confirm his word in people's lives. God wants to manifest miracles in our community, right? And so our responsibility when we are, are faced with opposition whether it's physical opposition or the own devil tempting us in our mind, is just to continue with people, right? To encourage people to stand against opposition, to be people of hope, to preach Jesus, to magnify the cross, to disciple, to disciple people. And guess what? God will do a work in us. Amen. Look what he goes on to say, Luke, in verse 4, Acts 14, 4. But the multitude of the city was divided. <laughs> Even after seeing all these miracles, how many know people still don't believe miracles today? <laughs> right in front of their face, right? And they still don't believe. The multitude of the city is divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers, how many know a lot of times rulers can stand against the kingdom? With their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And what did they do? They were preaching the gospel there. <laughs> well, you know, when the kingdom of God begins to make an impact in a new culture, there are times when things can become really dangerous. And that is what happens as a result of the ministry in Iconium. A line is drawn in the sand and some very zealous Jews attempt to kill Paul and Barnabas. They want to stone them, but they're unsuccessful and, and we're told that they flee the situation. You know, this isn't the first time we've seen Paul flee in the, in the book of Acts, right? Remember what happens after God saves him in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus and he's preaching in Damascus? They want to kill him there. So what has to happen? The disciples have to lower him down in the middle of the night in a giant basket, and he's got to sneak out of the city gates, right? And then he comes to Jerusalem, and he starts talking to the apostles, and people find him there, and guess what they want to do? They want to kill him. So he's got to flee again in the middle of the night, and he's got to go to Caesarea and then set sail for his hometown in Tarsus. Paul is keenly aware that there's times when you've got to flee, like Jesus said, right? So that's what they do. He flees, but it doesn't stop him from preaching. It doesn't stop him from continuing in, in the ministry. He just says, okay, wisdom at this time dictates that, that I flee. That I flee. It's okay to flee sometimes. Just don't lose your joy. Just don't lose, you know, you know your calling. Just don't lose your love for certain people. If you've got to flee certain people, say, you know, adios for, for a time being, that's okay. 
but just continue to, to pray for your enemies like Jesus taught, right? But maybe you don't just need to be so close to them as you were before. Okay, um, here's a picture. Can we put up a picture just so you have a visual illustration? So they're in Galatia, and then they're in Iconium. Then they go down to these other two cities, uh, uh, Lystra and, and Derby, and that's where they are. And these are the last two cities they visit in Galatia, and it says they're also in the surrounding villages. So they're in that whole territory of Galatia, preaching the gospel. Verse 8 picks up what happens in Lystra. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. He was born lame. This man heard Paul speaking. So he's probably been a beggar all of his life, right, seated at the gates. He, he can do nothing his whole life. And Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Wow, he did the leaping before the walking, right? Now, I don't know about you, but if you've never used your legs before in your life, you know what that means? They're weak, your muscles are atrophied, right? They're worthless. Even if they weren't healed, they would still be worthless at that moment. But this is a recreative miracle, right? God is not just healing his lameness, but he's healing all his muscles and all the blood vessels and everything else in his leg. And the guy springs up from the ground, right? And he walks. Wow, this reminds us of what happened in Acts chapter 3, remember? When, when Peter and John come to the temple and, and, and they find the lame man who also was born lame at the gate beautiful, right? And, and, and what, what, what does he say? He says, um, can, you, can you give me some alms? And, and Peter and John says, silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And, and he was walking and leaping and praising God. Well, the same spirit at work in John and Peter's ministry was now at work in Paul and Barnabas's ministry. The same exact miracles are happening. In that instance, it was the faith of John and Peter. In this instance, it's the faith of the lame man. In other instances, it's the faith of an intermediary, like um, when uh, the centurion or the Syrophoenician uh, came for their children or their servants and God healed them at a distance, right? But what it all centered around is, is faith. Faith, and, and, and point number two I want to make is this. Faith comes by hearing. A theme in many of the healing stories in the Gospels and Acts is that faith is the medium through which the healing virtue of Jesus reaches the sufferer. So where faith was present, so was Christ's restoration. He says in Mark 9, he says, according to your faith, be it unto you. He, he says in Matthew 15, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. He says in Mark 10, Go your way. Your faith has made you whole. And these sorts of statements, these sorts of refrains are repeated over and over again. Now this miracle of the lame man, we are simply told what? All he's doing is listening to Paul. And Paul, uh, uh, intently observing him, sees that he has faith to be healed. Whatever Paul is speaking about was creating faith in this man. I imagine he's probably preaching the gospel, right? That is what he preached. And, and um, 
right? Uh, the, the message of the cross, he says in 1 Corinthians, is the power of God. In Romans 1, it says that the message of the gospel is the power of God to who? To everyone who what? Believes. Right? So the power of God is especially made manifest in those who have faith. Whatever Paul was saying was building faith in the lame man who was listening. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Jesus is the author and the finisher or the perfecter of our faith. So we don't boast in our faith. We just boast in the message of Jesus and we say yes and amen to it. And that's what God is looking for. That's the faith he's looking for. For people who simply have hearts and trust of trust in what the word of God says. So Paul is building faith in this man as he's preaching. And Paul perceives that this man is ready to release his faith. And when he sees that, he makes a bold declaration to rise, right? (laughs) And he does. He leaps. Praise the Lord for that. But you know, not everyone had faith like that. This guy did. Paul saw it and he called it out. It's kind of like the woman with the issue of blood. Remember, everyone's jostling around Jesus. It's a giant crowd, and he's going through the crowd. Everybody's touching him. But then he stops, and he says, who touched me? And Peter's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Everybody's touched you. No, he says, somebody touched me, for I felt virtue come out of me. What is he talking about? He's not talking about a physical touch. Somebody touched him in faith. And when they touched him in faith, the issue of blood they had for 12 years was immediately healed. It was immediately restored. It was immediately made well. You know, there's an example in Mark about what happens in communities that lack faith. You know the community that lacked faith? Jesus' hometown. (laughs) Nazareth. Oh, this is Joseph's boy. This This is just the carpenter. What are you talking about? He's the Messiah. And it says, and then... When he makes the declaration, yeah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and I am the messianic figure, what do they want to do? They want to throw him off the cliff, right? And it says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And he could do no mighty work there except lay his hands on a few sick folk, but he couldn't do really anything big because nobody was coming to him for healing. No one had faith there. You know, there's only one other time Jesus marveled in the Gospels. It's when he marvels at great faith. He marvels at the hometown's unbelief, and he marvels at the great faith of, of who is it? It's the centurion, right? Something like that. The Gentile centurion. He marvels at the great faith of a Gentile centurion who simply comes to Jesus and says, if you speak one word, my servant who's at a distance of 20 miles away, he will be made whole. And it says that Jesus marveled. And he says, I haven't found such great faith like this in all the land of Israel. I don't know about you, but I would much rather be in an atmosphere of people who have faith that make Jesus marvel. I don't want to be in a place where people say, well, I don't know if Jesus really wants to do that. I don't know if Jesus, you know, really acts that same way today. You know, I, I don't know if I can really believe for you with healing. No, I want to have, 
a, a people surrounded that really believes that the same spirit at work in John and Peter and Barnabas and Paul is at work among us today. And I want Jesus to look at the community that's full of faith, that's like the centurion Gentile, and I want him to marvel. And I want him, right, to testify to the word of his grace with signs following. Amen? You know, I mentioned last week how Paul reminded the Galatians about why the healing miracles were happening among them. And this is what he wrote in Galatians. In Galatians 3, verse 5, he says this, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does, it do, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, what would all the Galatians who live in Lystra say? It's by the hearing of faith. We remember that guy was listening to you, and when he heard you, he sprang up and leaped, even though he's never walked before, right? The Moffat translation says this, because miracles happen because you believe the gospel message. And the gospel includes good news about healing. The message of the unmerited grace of God is foundational to miracles among us. You know, healing is not a reward for holy living. You are never worthy enough for healing just as you were never worthy enough to have your sins forgiven, right? It is rather a benefit of salvation. Psalm 103 says, forget not his benefits. Who what? Who forgives all your sins and what? Heals all your diseases. It is a gift procured by the blood of Jesus. He bore what? In his body on the cross. He bore the curse. He bore our sins. He bore our sickness. By his stripes we are healed. Paul might have been preaching the crucified man of Isaiah 53. And maybe he sees this man has faith. Jesus bore my sickness in his own body. And, and he sees the man saying, oh my goodness, I believe it. So Paul commands him to spring up and he springs. You know, when Peter summarizes the gospel ministry of Jesus in Acts chapter 10, when he's in Cornelius' household, this is what he says. Acts 10, 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And what did he do? He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. The gospel is described as a cosmic warfare of Christ demolishing the kingdom of the enemy. John says, for this purpose was the Son of God made manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Christ came, he said, to set the captives free. And part of the bondage of the enemy, as Peter put so clearly, was sickness and disease, right? As Jesus said about his healing, remember the woman who stumped over like this for 18 years? And what does Jesus say? He says, ought not this woman... Being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond? I could imagine people saying, she's a, she's a wonderful lady. What do you mean? What do you mean she's bound by Satan? Well, it doesn't mean she's a bad person. It just means that people, that, that Jesus came to set the captives free. You know, ultimately, the, the place where the devil and his angels are most forcibly defeated is at the cross. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, talking about the cross, <laughs> he says that the prince of the world will be cast out. 
And the book of Revelation says that we overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. When Jesus was healing all who were oppressed by the devil in his life, really that, that, that healing work came to the climax at the cross. Look what Isaiah 53 says, verse 4. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. Do you believe that? Do you believe he bore our sicknesses? And he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. We didn't see him as our substitute. We just thought that he was getting what he deserved. But what does God correct us? He corrects our vision, verse 5. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace, our shalom, our wholeness was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He didn't die because he deserved it. That was the last thing he deserved. He, he died because we deserved it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who bore away the sickness of the world. One thing we notice as we dig into that passage is that redemption is not solely about canceling sin. It's also about healing disease. You can't separate the spiritual and the bodily so much in Scripture. They're connected. The gospel is a double cure. Christ delivers us from sin and sickness. He is the sin bearer and he is the sickness bearer. We are not Gnostics. Christ did not just come to redeem our spirits. He has come to preserve us spirit, soul, and body. And while the totality of that redemption is yet to be seen, we know one day it ultimately all will be in the resurrection. Amen. And the first fruits of that redemption are operating in his church today. We can experience the truth of healing power today. When Isaiah says the servant bore our sickness, the word bore is the same word used in the book of Leviticus to describe the action of the scapegoat who bore away the sins into the wilderness. It simply means to lift up, to bear away, to remove to a distance. Therefore, when the scripture says he himself bore our sickness, it means that he has taken them away. He has removed them at a great distance. Our faith is placed in the fact that the great physician, the man of sorrows, is our sin and sickness bearer. That he hung on that cross for a double cure. And this healing virtue that flowed from the cross of Christ, you know, it even was applied retroactively into the ministry of Jesus. Some people want to say, well, the healing just means that he healed us spiritually. No, it doesn't, and the Bible explicitly tells us he doesn't in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. Why? That it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Why did he heal all the sick people who came to the house that day? Because he knew what he was about to do on the cross. And that was retroactively being applied right there in the present. Amen? Amen. Healing miracles occur because of the hearing of faith. Because people are believing the gospel. You know, we had a, uh, I was uh, preaching to pastors on Friday at a pastor's conference. 
And I spent the rest of the day talking to them. You know what they were doing? They were sharing about some miracles in their church. You know what that does? It encourages you. This one guy was telling about a woman uh, who for 18 years had been mentally handicapped. She had hit her head and she was kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, not fully vegetative, but she was on disability the rest of her life. She was a person who had a Ph.D. in chemistry, a top-notch scientific mind, and she couldn't do anything anymore. And then one day, she has a vision of Jesus. And you know what happens? In a moment, she's healed. And all that she had learned from the past comes back to her mind. And now she can teach in the universities. I was talking uh, to... Uh, I was talking to Don yesterday. He was talking about how his stepdad, when they were in Jerusalem, they go to the site of the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's a rock there. They, they say this is the rock where Jesus prayed. And that just stirred his father's faith. So what did he do? He went and he laid on the rock. And for 30 minutes he prayed. And he says he felt the warmth of God surge throughout his body. Right before he went on the trip, they told him he has cancer in his body. They get back from the trip, they say, you have no more cancer in your body. You know, that's the miracle working power of God. Acts 14, verse 11. <laughs> now when the people saw what Paul had done, they see this man, born lame. They know him, they known him her, their whole life. They see him spring up. And when they see that, it says this, they raise their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us. In the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul Hermes. Because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Who in bygone generations allowed nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. Gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Third point I want to make is this. Turn from useless things to the living God. Amen. You know, this miracle so stuns the people in Lystra that they all begin to speak in their own native tongue. Right? They had been speaking in the common language of Greek. Now they're speaking Laconian language. Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's happening. Here's these people on the frontier of Galatia, and they revert to their language, and, and, and they're getting excited about something. They don't know what to do. And, and they're, what's probably happening is there's a story uh, the Roman poet Ovid wrote about, um, had to do with Greek mythology, you know, fantasy stories. But these people believed they were real history. And he told one story that happened in Galatia, in the Lyconian area, about Zeus and Hermes coming down as men. And at that time when they came, and they came to the villages like Lystra, Nobody received them into their house except one elderly couple. And when, when Zeus and Hermes saw that, 
uh, Ovid says that they destroyed everybody in the city except the two people who received them and showed them hospitality. So these people are thinking, oh my goodness, if it's Zeus and Hermes, if we don't show them great hospitality, they're going to strike us dead. So they go, let's get some bulls, let's sacrifice, let's do everything we can for them, right? And, and, and Paul and Barnabas is like, no, 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 no. There aren't many, many gods. There's not a pantheon of gods. Get free from your idolatry. There is one God who made all things. He made heaven and earth and everything that is in them, and he has testified to himself by you for giving you wonderful seasons and giving you wonderful food and giving you joy in your hearts, and he's just showed his loving grace. He makes his sun shine on the just and the unjust, and we have a good God in heaven, and you need to turn to the living God from these useless idols. <laughs> How many know there's a lot of things? We all can turn away from a bunch of useless things in our life, amen? John ends 1 John by saying, my little children, keep yourself from idols. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians who believe in the one true God. And yet he knew they had a temptation towards idolatry. So say, Lord, show me what some of these useless things. I just want to put them in the trash now, right? And I want to turn from them. This is repentance. Turn from something and turn toward the living God. Amen. Let's pick up in Acts. Uh, we'll look at more of that sermon. Uh, Paul speaks a similar sermon to the Gentiles when he's in Athens in Acts chapter 17. So we'll look, we'll look at some of those themes more then. But let's jump to verse 19 now. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. These guys traveled 150 miles. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Wow. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So here we see these zealots who had expelled them from Antioch. And they're so mad at these guys. They said, let's get together. Let's travel 100 miles, and let's give these guys what they deserve. Right? They're kind of like Paul when we first meet Paul as Saul, right? What is he doing? He's traveling hundreds of miles to arrest Christians and then to cast his vote against them so that they'll be put to death. Well, these are a bunch of Sauls. Just kind of like Saul was holding all the coats of everyone who's stoning Stephen. Well, these guys come and they hold the coats of everybody who's going to stone Paul. But Paul survives. You know, Stephen, he, he, he was blessed. He got to go straight into the arms of Jesus and enjoy eternity, right? But God's like, Paul, sorry, bro you got to stay around a little longer, right? And you know, I'll tell you what. When someone is stoned, they don't just pop right back up. You know that? In fact, I tried to look for some images and videos of stoning. You can't really find them on Google. They censor it all. I did find one of some Taliban stoning some modern-day people. I'll tell you what. It's the, the wickedest, gruesomest thing you could ever imagine, right? Your, your brains are being bashed out. Your bones are being broken. You're bruised all over, right? When you're stoned, the intention is that you die. So for Paul to spring up after being stoned would have been a miracle. <laughs> and to go back into the city after he's stoned and then continue on his journey the next day, that's a miracle. 
And this is why he says at the end of Galatians, he's writing this a year later, after his stoning. And he says this in Galatians 6, verse 17. From now on, let no one trouble me. He's talking really about these Jewish persecutors and all the Judaizers there in Galatia. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I think all these people who, who he was written to would have understood what he's talking about. They would have seen that his body was absolutely battered. But as Paul said, I've been struck down, but I'm not destroyed. And he got up and he kept preaching. And the Lord continued to be faithful to him and the Lord continued to deliver him. In fact, when he writes to Timothy, who's one of his great disciples, a, a, a disciple who's actually from this area of Galatia, this is what he says to him in 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me where? At Antioch, he's talking Antioch of Pisidia and Galatia. At Iconium, at Lystra, all the Galatian cities. That persecutions I endured. And what? And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. <laughs> Aren't you glad? You know, God wants to deliver us out of things. How did the Lord teach us to pray? Deliver us from evil. And, uh, and the Lord delivers him, and he goes back into the city. Can you imagine going back into the city of the people who just stoned you? Who will go back to the city? He goes back to the people. And his response to the stoning was simply to preach the gospel and make as many disciples as he could make. Wow. Wow. He, wasn't, he, he usually didn't leave until he knew for sure they were going to kill him or they expelled him. Verse 21, what's it going to say? And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed leaders or elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, which was a city uh, near the coast of the Mediterranean, they went to Italia, which was the port city. And from there they sailed to Antioch. This is in Syria, where they had initially been, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So the, my last point I want to make is this, the importance of discipleship. You know, Jesus' heart was what? When he gave the Great Commission, did he say, go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Uh, and, and, you know, uh, did he want them to make uh, converts of all nations? No, he wanted them to make disciples of all nations. They didn't, he didn't want his apostles just to go out and preach and leave and be gone. No, he wanted them to go out and preach and preach and preach and establish, and leave, and come back, and disciple, and preach, and build, and, and gather, and, you know, together grow in, into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus' commission was. It wasn't just to go out as, and get as many people to repeat the center prayer as you can. No, it was to go out and to disciple people. So what did they say? You know, they could have left Derby, and he could have traveled another 50 miles east, went to his hometown of Tarsus, spent time with his relatives, then they could have just gone across the pond, back to Antioch. But he says, no, let's trace our steps backwards. Let's go back to all of these cities. 
where we were stoned, where we were thrown out, where they wanted to stone us, where they wanted to kill us. Let's go back there. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan, right? But you know what happened? The Lord preserved him. And it says the Lord was strengthening the churches and encouraging them. And, and they were praying and they were fasting in these areas. And, and God was showing Paul and Barnabas who to install in these little new church communities all throughout these villages and cities and everywhere. And the kingdom was growing and it was an exciting time. <laughs> you know, um, uh, this is what uh, Paul wrote to Titus. Titus was like a Timothy. In Titus 1 verse 5 he says this, This reason I left you in Crete, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. You know, leadership is important to God, um, and uh, you know, having the right people in these positions in churches all over was important to God. And you know, it's not as if somehow they're giving people spiritual authority, but as they're praying and fasting, they're recognizing the spiritual authority that God had gifted to people. That's what ordination is. It's recognizing before people a gift that God has placed in them, right? You know, some, <laughs> some church traditions, they say, well, no, the only people are whoever had their hands laid on, you know, by, by the apostles and them and, and so on and so on. You know, these are the only gifted ones. No, God gives the gifts. Man just recognizes the gifts that God gave, okay? And that's what they're doing. Last two verses, verse 27. Now when they had come and gathered, so now they're back in Antioch in Syria. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, so they're gathering all the home churches together for this big time of celebration. They reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. You know, when they got back and they gave the praise report in Antioch, they didn't say, look at all these wonderful things we've done. They said, Look what God has done. Look what God has done through us. You know, when we read these stories, we're not supposed to be in awe of Paul and Barnabas. We're supposed to be in awe of God. We're supposed to be in awe of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be in awe of the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Look at, look at the doors that God opened for us. You know, in three of his other letters, Paul talks about how God opened doors for them. And he, and he asked the Colossians to pray that God would continue to open doors of ministry for him. You know, we can pray that. Lord, open a door for me so I know whom I'm supposed to witness to, so I know who I'm supposed to love, so I know who I'm supposed to pray with, so I know who I'm supposed to encourage. Lord, open the right doors for me, and, and may I see those doors, and may I walk through them. Amen? And may God, give the, may God get the glory. You guys ready to take communion? If anyone doesn't have communion element, go ahead and raise your hand. Hallelujah. If you're here and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? You can take communion with us. <laughs> Isn't that a good deal? And what is this? This is a recognition of the place where he bore not just all of our sins, but he bore all of our sickness and disease. Amen. So when we partake of the meal, 
Let's believe for a complete restoration. Spirit, soul, and body. So that we can fulfill all the purposes that he has us to fulfill in this life. Amen? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the body, your body, that was broken on the cross, not because you deserved it, but because we deserved it. 